going to fold in the reading of the scripture along with my outline. If you picked up sermon notes to try to combine the two. If you look at verse 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes 7, please turn with me there in your Bibles, you'll see the theme. If there was one thing, or let's say more than one, that you could change in your life right now, what would it be? If you could change one thing, would it be chronic illness or feeling weak and sick? Would it be depression that strikes you many times by surprise? Anxiety, personal betrayal, a broken relationship, a broken heart that is still present with you. If you could change one thing or many, would it be loneliness, that ache of feeling by yourself? False allegations, betrayal, addiction. I just can't stop. I want to, and I know it's destroying me. Grief, loss of someone close to you. That hole. Would you change the sorrow? You just can't even remember the last time you've been happy or joyful. What about wasted effort? You put so much into that. And now it's broken or it's ended so much time. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's financial loss or a threat to our financial health. Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 7, the preacher, Solomon, has a word for us. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, be thoughtful, be aware, pay attention, write it down. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Solomon has brought this up before. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 15, in the opening of this book, in the opening of this 13-chapter sermon to a congregation, Israel, that he wants them to hear toward the end of his life in reflection, the wisest man in all of the world, given wisdom by God, considering all of life, said in verse 15, and looking at these things, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13, he adds something. 
In 15, he's saying, like Eugene Peterson says in the message, who can simplify and reduce creation's curves and angles to a plain, straight line? Who can make a crooked line straight as we desire? Who can take the curveballs out of life that are out there for us and that we face even now? In chapter 1, the preacher says, that's the vanity of life. We can't, and we face them without God. But here, in verse 13 of chapter 7, he now says, consider the work of God. He says, look at the curves of life. Look at the circumstances. Look at the circumstances that are so humbling so burdensome look at them now and consider the work of God so he's adding God the Reverend Thomas Boston in the early 1700s was a Scottish theologian and small time or small community pastor and he preached a sermon called the crook in the lot on these two verses and he did so upon the loss of yet another child he had ten children six of whom died in infancy and one of those children was named Ebenezer but Ebenezer died in infancy another son was on the way and was born and Thomas Boston said I'd really like to name him Ebenezer Ebenezer is found in 1 Samuel chapter 7 where it said here I raise my Ebenezer because thus far has the Lord brought me and Ebenezer is a, a monument or a memorial so that when you see it you can say the Lord has brought me through Thomas said, do I dare to name another son Ebenezer? And he did. Ebenezer was born a very sickly child and soon died. And Thomas Boston said, a God who is sovereign over all of life that I do not understand has chosen to take another child from me. He would go on in his sermon and he would say this, that there is a certain course or train of events by the providence of God falling to every one of us during our life in this world and that is our lot. And it is allotted to us. It's chosen for us by the hand of a sovereign God. In that train or course of events, some fall out cross to us against the grain, and these make the crook in our lot. We would have straight lines, 
but by the hand of a sovereign God, some of these events fall in crooked in our life and unwelcome. While we are here, there will be crooked events as well as agreeable ones in our lot and condition. Sometimes things are softly and agreeably gliding by, but by and by, there's a crook, a crook in our lot which alters the straight course. And it pains us. And everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There is no perfection here. The preacher is saying that we have crooked events in our lot and it's come from God's hand. It's not from the old laugh-in show out of the 60s, the, the fickle finger of fate. If God is sovereign, that means there is no event or issue or course in our life that has not come from his hand. It has not come without his permit. And yet, here, we're asked to consider the work of God. And in the day of adversity, verse 14, consider. That means take stock. Not just wish it to go away, but actually, as Eugene Peterson would say in his version, the message of verse 14, on a bad day, examine your conscience. Examine your heart. Thomas Boston would later in his sermon say that the crook in our lot, the pain that is so unwelcome by us, but it comes from God's hand, and it is in our lot chosen for us, may very well be there because of our other bent towards spiritual laziness. And that crook drives us to our knees to pray. That crook did not drives us to some form in examining my conscience of a new self-discipline or a self-denial. It drives me away from the want of this world and to a greater faith in the next world to come. Oh, but if we would see it that way. In verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, we read this. A good name is better than precious ointment. That's what God is about. God is more committed to our character than our short-term happiness. Crooked things in life are beneficial. Your good name, your good name is more important than your good time. See, ointment, precious ointment, that's used back in Esther, chapter 2, and it's later used in Matthew 26. In Esther, Esther, in order to be prepared in her best to go before the king, it says that there was precious ointment that was brought to her and placed upon her. And then in Matthew 26, it was a precious ointment 
that was broken and anointed Christ. Ointment was very expensive in Israel, and it was something that was used for the party. It was something that was used for happy times. But God is more committed to you and your name, and I will say your holiness, than he is your happiness. And that can be hard for us to embrace because we want pleasant times and we want pleasant things. Oh Lord, just just look and see how I will benefit from all the pleasant things. And yet, time and time again, we drift. Let me ask you a question. When do you pray the most? When do you plead in prayer? When do you cry in prayer? When do you like a servant looks to the master or a maidservant looks to her mistress, when do you with a singular eye look to God? Is it in comfort? Is it when we give thanks? Or is it pain? There is something that Solomon does. He says... It's better the day of death than the day of birth. The date of your death is a better day to think about than the day of your birth. It's better, verse 2, to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. The living will consider it. The living will jot it down. The living will pay attention. And they'll take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your faith in God. Things in this life have failed you. But does that not direct you to one who will not fail? Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of the choir of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. It's like, it just passes away. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and that means extortion, blackmail, compromise. It drives wise people crazy that men should so compromise and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than it's the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. In these eight verses, the preacher takes us on a journey. And it's almost like uh, uh, you know, uh, Charles Dickens, the, the Christmas story, where a, a ghost comes and, and takes Ebenezer Scrooge trying to, to give him one last chance, takes him into the past and takes him to the present, and he takes him into the future. And at the future, that's a very dark specter. It's an angel of death, the grim reaper. And he will point to a memento mori. He'll point to a tombstone that has his name on it. If you look at historic art, many times you'll see on a desk in a study, you'll see a skull. That was a memento mori. It was an object that you look at 
and you remember your own death lies ahead. That you would consider and you would count your days. You would have something that would remind you, like a funeral, one day that will be me. How am I living my life now? You can learn more from a funeral sermon many times than you can in a home celebrating the birth of a child. Romans 8, verses 28 and 29 says this, and we often forget or minimize verse 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now we often quote that in our trial and we say, I know that God, I'm, I know he's at work here, but it's just so hard right now, it's so painful right now. For those who are called according to his purpose. I, if you're in Christ, you're a son or a daughter. And there is purpose in the pain. It is beneficial, these circumstances of hardship, of crookedness in our lot. But what is that purpose? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here comes in verse 29 the purpose, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Pain. Pain has the purpose of getting us to think, to consider, to look at adversity different. And to not think like those who it says here are fools. In verse 9, there's the threat that when we're faced with crooked situations, then we're very tempted to get angry to God. Now this is chronic with every one of us. If I have a, a vision from this for two rivers... My vision and my prayer would be this, is that we would complain, grouse, grumble, whine less. I think we always will. But that we would be more apt to, to say less with a tone and attitude, God, what are you doing? And would consider adversity, the crooked in our lot. God, what are you up to? What is, what are you? you doing with this pain? Don't let a good crisis go to waste. Not if the purpose is to conform me to the image of my Savior. The choice, though, is before us. Verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. That's the fool that asked that. Oh, why wasn't it like the regret? Oh, if I could just... It, not, it wasn't always like this. If we could just go back. Oh, the former days were so much better. Truth be told, we had... Look at things then. 
But that's the fool that says, I want Christianity to be painless. I want the molding and the conforming me as a son or daughter into the image of my Savior to be with less pain. Thomas Nelson, a minister out of Texas, in his commentary on this, shared a personal antidote. He said, A.W. Tozer has written that God cannot use a man until he has hurt him deeply. And also a woman. In other words, God must break us in order to get us to listen. We're not as apt to be changed by doctrine or knowledge, but by pain. You can be preached at, preached at, preached at, preached at, preached at, but it's pain, pain that will open the door of your heart to receive it. He says, my son Ben, when he was growing up, had a hard time hearing. I would give him a command to obey in our family. But he had wax between his ears. And I would tell him, but it was as if it was not getting through. And I found that if I would just heat up by about 15 degrees his rear end, it would melt the wax out of his ears. And he would obey. And he would say, now I hear what you're saying. And I will do it. It's funny. How are you reacting? How are you reacting? Are you going, and I would suggest the Psalms, but are you going, particularly the, the Psalms that are in the 80s, go and take your pain, and you'll be joined there by a wonderful worship leader who will say, I understand what it's like to plead in God's face to be far from you, or, God, to be quiet in your trial. I understand, but this is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture. And he does hear us. And in time, he will answer. But in the meantime, he wants to use these humbling circumstances to keep us close to himself or draw us back. How do you react? Do you go to God? Do you, do you seek out wisdom? Are you right now developing time to develop wisdom? Are you doing that? Are you, you know, you're, you're like me. I would love for God to answer me this. Just tell me why. Just give me a reason. I'm like Job in that. And do you know what God says in return? Nothing. He promises no clarity. He does not make himself answerable to me, even if I could understand it. What he says is, you don't need clarity, you need wisdom. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun. In other words, if you're a child and you get an inheritance and you possess this wisdom, you'll use that inheritance wisely, but better Verse 12, then money, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. 
Wisdom is even better than money. Wisdom preserves the life. Are you seeking it? Do you want this thing that will preserve you? And if so, it's going to look like, I think, two things. Regular Bible study. For this is God's wisdom to us. Secondly, Christian friends. Would you pray with me? I don't know what God's doing right now. Maybe they see something, see something about you. Maybe from their own immersion in God's Word, they can speak a good word into your life from God. Or are you like the fool, just trying to figure out the vain pursuit? Why the pain? Why am I suffering? Why these humiliating, humbling circumstances right now? It says here that, I can't leave this verse, but be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. This is the test for me. This is the test for me. That I am reacting like a fool to unwelcome circumstances. I get angry. Now, anger, I believe, like David Pallison in his new book, Good and Angry, can be categorized by at least a spectrum of three forms. You've got the human volcano. It just builds and builds and builds and builds and then finally spews out all of everybody. And then you've got the gunslinger. The domesticated gunslinger. And unlike Barney Fife, he doesn't have the one bullet in his pocket. He's loaded and he's ready. Very, he's, he's on edge or she's on edge. And in a moment, just bam, 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 breaks out. Or maybe you're the third category of anger. In all of these situations, you're the iceberg. And you're just stuffing it, stuffing it passively. And then it begins to form passive aggression. God is saying, God is saying, and I believe like James 4 teaches us, what's behind our anger? It's foolish. We're angry because we're not getting what we want. We're not getting the life that we want. And so we get mad at God, and yet we're so pious, we don't express our anger very well to God, we express it to other people. Am I the only one? Am I preaching myself here? I'd be seeing a lot of shaking heads. Penny ought to be dropping for a lot of us. What it sounds like for me is I don't want what's good for me. I don't want to be conformed if this is what it takes. I want pleasantness. And God's saying, No, I'm going to preserve your life. And I want you in the day of adversity to consider, verse 14, that God has made the one as well as the other. He's made this, and he's made it for a purpose. It's this wisdom from God that gives us strength. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this. Once again, consider it. Do an inventory. What is that trial? What is that crookedness? What is it right now? 
that if you could change anything in your life, you would change it. But God doesn't seem to be allowing it to be changed. And there's those expressions of anger or maybe doubt of God. Are you good to allow this? It is good that you should take hold of this, that you should take stock. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now earlier he's saying that there's a form of our faith that, that takes two, two extreme positions. One is self-righteousness in verse 16. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. This is the man or woman that always has to be right in every situation. And then in verse 17, he says, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. This is the one that just constantly says, It's all grace, it's all grace, don't worry, just blow it off. We can, liberty, liberty, liberty. They say, No, balance. And what gives us balance? It's a fear of the Lord, a respect of the Lord. The fear of God is to know that He is God and I'm not. I can't figure this out. Verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? God has reasons and He's made those clear. He's growing us up. He's growing children. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, one of my verses that I have been meditating on a great deal. Though he was a son, and this is speaking of Jesus Christ, though he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. Jesus Christ himself suffered in this life in order to demonstrate a complete trust in all circumstances of God, His Sovereign Father. And in conforming us to be that image, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, that if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate sons or children and sons, not sons. One mark that we are God's children is God is at work in our life through all of these circumstances to mold us like His Son, and that through our obedience and through faith. And by that, we're able to face sin, we're able to face criticism, we're able to face those times of perplexity, we're able to face those times of even sexual temptation. It's all there in the text. Thomas Boston, at the end of that sermon, gives us this counsel. He said, God uses circumstances in our life. He uses the crook in our lot to save us even from ourselves. Let the bent of your heart then in all your humbling circumstances be towards the humbling of your spirit 
as under the mighty hand of God. Observe what these circumstances, circumstances, humbling though they are, invite you, invite you, invite your spirit to trust in God. Are the circumstances that we are under, as Solomon says, that they are they adverse and they're humbling and they're challenging but are they leading to a greater intimacy and trust of God or are they leading us away? Solomon says, consider the work of God for these things, both adversity as well as prosperity, they come from God's hand. Though difficult, it is his hands and we can trust that hand. Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed, would take with hands that would soon be pierced. Out of his great love for us and his trust for his Father, he would obey even to the death on a cross. Those hands that he would break the bread that night would be pierced as an act of great love and trust of God the Father. Obedience that we might come to experience His love on the cross demonstrated into, to us while we were yet sinners. That we might come this morning and take of that very flesh that it trusted and obeyed and died on a cross and say, I will be strengthened by that flesh. I will be strengthened by my Savior that I can face circumstances that appear like death to me. I will be strengthened as I look to him. And he promises that strength in this table, for on the night that he was betrayed, having broken bread, he said, this represents my flesh, which is broken for you. It represents the brokenness that I receive that you would not have to. And then in the same manner, he would take the cup and he would say, this cup represents my shed blood, which is poured out for you in the remission of sin, the washing away of all sins. Eat and drink in remembrance of me. And we don't remember and consider him as a fallen hero that inspires us. But we eat and we remember him as one that we will draw strength from and even conform to him by dying to those things of the flesh in this world that we might conform more and more to be the image of Christ our Savior. Let's pray as I invite our men to come forward as they prepare to service. Men, please come forward. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take this cup and this bread and that you would strengthen us. There are those in this room, every one of us is fighting a battle right now. And I pray that you would forgive us where we have fought that battle sinfully, full of unbelief against you. Father, help us to look at our circumstances again and help us to know that you are not unaware and that they are purposeful even for the shaping of our life for good.
Lord, I pray that you would forgive us where we have lashed out unfairly even against others in our anger over our situation in life. Oh, Jesus Christ, strengthen us from this table. Strengthen us to face those circumstances even gladly and heal us and conform us to yourself. Through the power of your spirit and the use of this table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.